Acts chapter 14, uh, last furlough I began to preach the book of Acts. Um, I didn't want my family to be listening to the same handful of messages all year long. And so we made it through Acts chapter 9 last furlough and gradually we've been working our way through Acts since then and we're now in Acts chapter 14. Verses 8 through 18, verses 8 through 18, but we're going to back up to, uh, let's back up to verse 5 verse 4 and catch up with it but the multitude of the city they're in Iconium at this point the multitude of the city of Iconium was divided part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles some were believing the apostles were believing the gospel some were siding with the Jews who were opposed to the gospel and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them they, the apostles, became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So first they introduce us to the fact that they go to the region, but now they're going to backtrack and they're going to focus on Lystra. So the narrative here in Lystra. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes. Some translations have Jupiter for Zeus or Mercury for Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, or Jupiter, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in, guy, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with joy, with food and gladness." And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. I love to play soccer, and presently we are in the Copa America, which is the uh, South American Cup. And so the ten countries of South America are playing each other in two groups of five. And then I think out of the, out of the five, maybe the top four will go into, of each group into a sudden death elimination tournament. And it's just exciting to, to watch Peru play against Brazil. It's not exciting when Peru loses 4-0, to zero, but it's still okay to watch the game. And all the other countries are playing, and it's a peak time of performance. Oftentimes, when a player makes a goal, he will exalt himself. He will maybe point at the number on his jersey or point at the back, or maybe he'll do something in the stands that just kind of brings glory to the fact that he made the goal. Once in a while I watch American football, once in a great while, and I watch highlights especially, and 
at the end of a touchdown, there might be a runner who, instead of praising himself or just pumping the ball on the, on the floor, will kneel down and point to heaven. And I generally understand that as to the fact that this player is giving God the glory for the touchdown that he made. In the gospel ministry, only God deserves the glory. First Peter chapter 4, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how can we bring glory to God in our ministry? Well, Paul is going to show us three ways to bring glory to God. And the first way is found in the first few verses. We need to prove, first of all, we need to prove God's glory. So there is, um, Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey. They were sent out by the church in Antioch, the church of Antioch, the city, the capital of what was then the Roman province of Syria. Today, that Antioch is at the bottom point of Turkey. But they were sent out by Antioch. They went first to the island of Cyprus and preached in the synagogues of the Jews and preached the gospel in many places. Then they sailed across the ocean again, Mediterranean, to Antioch of Pisidia. In Antioch of Pisidia, many disciples were made, but opposition grew up. And because of the opposition, they were expelled from the city of Antioch. So they flee 90 miles north. They feel like they're far, far away, away now. They're in, they were in Iconium. But again, after seeing people saved, the opposition grew, and in this case, they were almost stoned, and they were able to flee just in time. And so they have fled now about 20 miles south to the little town of Lystra. Lystra's ruins have not been excavated yet. It's a town that no longer exists. The region was Lycaonia, and of course, they spoke Lycaonia language. It was a small region, and it was part of the Roman province of Galatia. So. It's possible that when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he was writing to the people here at Lystra and, and Derby and, and others. But it was important as a Roman colony and now as a military outpost in the Roman province of Galatia. So Paul begins to pre, began to speak as his habit is. And in previous cities, he would go to the synagogue first. We don't have an indication that he is in the synagogue here. But it's possible that if there was a synagogue, that he would have gone to the synagogue first. And then he also spoke in the open areas. We're not exactly sure where he is preaching. We do know that later on, sacrifices were attempted to be made for him at the gates of the city. So perhaps he was at the entrance of the gates where people congregated. And maybe he was just maybe standing on a stool somewhere and just raising his voice and preaching out to the people that were surrounding the area. So as he, was, as he was preaching, he was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have his message here in this passage, but I want you to jump back to a message that Paul gave in Antioch so that you can see the gist of his message. We'll go to chapter 13, verse 26. We're not going to read through the whole message. We're just going to read some highlights of his message. Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So it's talking about salvation, salvation from sin, from the power of sin on our lives and from the penalty of sin, which is eternal damnation. So the message of salvation from sin is being preached. How is that brought about? Jump down to verse 29. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Christ had to come to earth, and Christ had to die for our sin. The wages of sin is death. 
But Jesus died in a place so that we don't have to take that penalty. Christ died for us. Thus, he also then gives us forgiveness of sins. This is effectuated also through verse 30, God raised him from the dead. So Christ not only died for his sins, but he rose to show his power over death and sin. And now he can offer that forgiveness. Jump down to verse 38, and we see that proven. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. How can we obtain that forgiveness of sins? Verse 39, by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul is going around preaching the gospel of forgiveness of sins so that we can have a right relationship with God and so that we can have a life everlasting in the presence of God after we die. That's great news, isn't it? It's just sad that a lot of people don't see it that way. You know, gospel ministry never was easy. Even the great apostle Paul was expelled from cities. They did not believe. Even the great apostle Paul was stoned, almost, in this case, and he will be stoned soon for preaching the gospel. And even today, when we go around preaching the gospel, we want people to hear, and we want people to understand, we want people to believe, but it's not going to happen in the majority of the cases. But there is a remnant that God is choosing. God has his people, and some will believe, and we need to be preaching the gospel faithfully so that those people will believe. And even though a lot of people will reject you, there's going to be somebody out there who will believe, and we need to preach for those people. So Paul is doing that. He knew there were people that would believe, and so he's there preaching in spite of all the opposition. So as he's preaching, he, he beholds a lame man who had never walked in his life. And this lame man was listening to Paul's preaching, and, and he had faith in what Paul was saying. And his face showed the face, faith that he had. So Paul sees that on his face, and so he said to him, stand up right on your feet. And this man then leaped and he walked. Now, it doesn't say he got up and walked. It said he leaped and walked. So I can't imagine that, but I'm just thinking of this man prostrate. Maybe he's sitting down, and all of a sudden his legs begin to work, and boom, he leaps, and he begins to walk. And that leap must have brought the attention of everybody onto this person. Not only the fact that he was walking, but all of a sudden he leaps up. Wow. And so the crowd reacts. They were impacted by the fact that God had done a miracle through this man. We need to prove the glory of God. And Paul proved the glory of God by healing this man miraculously. All the attention is now, if it wasn't on Paul before, it certainly is on Paul right now. How can we prove the glory of God today? Well, we want to be careful not to be going around trying to imitate what Paul did and trying to heal somebody miraculously. The divine healing was granted to the apostles prior to Jesus' departure and then after Jesus' departure. And then later we see in the book of Corinthians that healing was God's gift to some, but not to all. And that divine healing was God's gift. It wasn't something that I kind of worked my way into it. It wasn't under my control. But even as, as these ministers were healing at times, there were many times in the New Testament that people were not healed. You know, Jesus only healed one person at the pool of Bethesda. The apostles healed many people, but not all. And gradually we find that Paul did not heal, for example, Epaphroditus. And what did he say to Timothy? Just drink a little wine for sake of your stomach. So 
it's not that we're going to be healing people right and left wherever we want to. It's all in God's sovereign plan. And then as we see the progress of healing in the New Testament, gradually we see it beginning to die out. Only Corinthians mentions healing, and the other passages about the gifts don't mention healing gift at all. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, that indicate that these signs were basically for an era. It was the era of transition in which God was proving with miraculous signs that the gospel that was being preached was indeed the truth that comes from him. It wasn't a made-up thing. It was a God-backed truth. But once all that miraculous intervention has been recorded in Scripture, then God no longer needs those miraculous events. And you go back to the Old Testament, too. There were times in which God showed his miraculous power, but then there were years and years and years in which he did not show any miraculous power because his intent is that we look at the word of God and not be expecting him to do miracles all the time, to convince us all the time. I once spoke to a verteria man, a hardware owner in Peru, and I was preaching the gospel to him, and he said, well, if, if Jesus really exists, why doesn't he come down and show us? And Jesus did come down one time, and people did not believe him even when, even when he did come down. And he wants us to believe the written word more than he wants us to be believing every time that he shows up miraculously. So likewise, we need to be meeting or we need to be proving the glory of God in our community, maybe not through healing, but there are other ways in which we can prove the glory of God in our community. Obviously, salvation and transformation that we have proves God's glory. People will see a change in our lives. As we live in a way that is a sanctified manner, people will see our conduct and they will glorify our God, which is in heaven. But I think there's another way here. Paul is meeting somebody's need. And likewise, as we meet the needs in the community, that will also bring impact to our community and help people understand that this is a church that cares not only about the believers, but also about the unbelievers. We know that helping the needy people is true religion, according to James chapter 1, verse 27. And meeting people's financial needs brings glory to God. Second Corinthians says, Thanksgiving to God and glorify God for the giver's obedience to the gospel. But not only can we meet the believer's needs, but we can also meet the community's needs. I know that's a little tricky because we certainly don't want to be known as a social gospel church. But there are ways in which we can reach out. I remember the previous pastor here would ride with the, past, with the policemen in their cars. It was his attempt to reach out and meet a need in the community and thus impact the community and be able to share the gospel with them. And as the world sees the church meeting needs and they're impressed with God of the church and the glory of God. A church in Lafayette, Indiana used its auditorium one night when the Interstate I-65 was closed. All the people that came off the interstate were diverted by the state patrol to that church, and they just spread out in the auditorium of the church. And that was a way for which the church could cooperate with Red Cross and meet a need in the community. In Peru, COVID struck. We had a deacon's fund, and so we began to distribute food to the needy believers in our church. But some of our needy believers had friends, and some of them were from Venezuela. They had migrated from that country and in Peru, they did not have good jobs. They did not have savings. And so we gave baskets of food and we gave money as necessary to some of these Venezuelan immigrants who were not believers. And I think God got the glory through our church as we began to meet the needs of those, of those people. So even though we cannot heal miraculous today, I think we can still impact our community with our life as a church 
and bring people's glory and attention to the God of the church. They come back here and we're trying to find out how we can glorify God in our ministry. First of all, by proving God's glory. Secondly, now by protecting God's glory. We need to protect the glory of God. So when the miracle occurred, the crowds thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods who had come down in the flesh. And that is almost a blasphemy because who is the only true God who came down in the flesh? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they called Barnabas Zeus, and some translations have Jupiter, the Greek word is Zeus, but in this time, the Romans had adopted the Greek gods and gave them the names of the Roman counterparts. So the Greek god Zeus had his counterpart Jupiter. Zeus or Jupiter was the leading Greek god, and so Barnabas as the leader of the two, maybe as the senior of the two, maybe as the older of the two, was given the name Zeus. And then they called Paul Hermes, or Mercury again. The Greek is Hermes, but because in the Roman times, the Greek god was Mercury, and the Hermes was the, uh, the Greek god, the Roman god was Mercury, so the two names were inter interrelated. Now Mercury, or Hermes, was the god of eloquence, the chief speaker. And so Paul was called Mercury. Mercury was considered the son of Jupiter, or Hermes was considered the son of Zeus. And so the priest came out and he wants to give a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because he thinks they are the descendants of the Greco-Roman mythology. Gods in their own flesh come to their town. Well, this was off limits for Paul and Barnabas. They were servants of the true living God. They were no servants of Zeus or Jupiter, Mercury or Hermes. And so they tore their robes. The fact that they tore their robes indicates that they did not smile with pride and self-gratification over the fact that they had done something great for the Lord. Oftentimes when, when we do something well for the Lord, we, we have that tendency of saying, look how good I am. Look, good job I did. But no way with Paul. All glory was for God. And he, he did the opposite. He tore his robes. They tore the robes, and he and Barnabas then rushed into the crowd. It was not a matter of a, oh, please give glory to God. No, this, to them this is totally wrong. They rushed into the crowd energetically. They wanted to put an end to this. They wanted to make sure that the glory is reflected to God. And they were bold in the face of this crowd as they corrected the error of the crowd. They wanted to correct the idolatry of those people. They said, we're just men. And you must turn from these useless things, this idolatry to the living God, the creator. So we must protect the glory of God. And all through the epistles of Paul, he is constantly protecting the glory of God, even when he had the opportunity to glory as the spiritual father of so many different believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who considers you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, not, if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? 2 Corinthians 10, But the one who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. 2 Corinthians 12, Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations given to Paul, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So how can we follow Paul's example and protect the glory of God? I'm sure at work, maybe you've done a, a great job and uh, 
your coworkers, your boss praises you. Well, what do you do? How do you respond? Are you going to say, you betcha, I'm a great guy? No. You say, thank you for the compliment, thank you for the encouragement, but praise God who gives me the strength. When you're in church, maybe you're teaching Sunday school, maybe you come up, sing a special, or, and thank God for the pianists and organists today for their efforts. I really appreciate that. It helps us to sing to the Lord. And I appreciate all the effort that goes into that, and I appreciate the talent that God gives to them. And so I, I thank them, and, and they then can say, yes, and thank God for the ability that he has given to me. This helps us in another way. Sometimes because of competition, um, you may not be prone to give somebody else the encouragement that they need when they do something right. And you are sometimes maybe jealous that they did a good job and you wish you could do it just like they do. And that lack of glorifying God for them impedes the fact that you can give them encouragement. But when you look at God and you see that God is the one who gives the gifts of each person, then you can go ahead and say, thank you. I want to encourage you. You did a great job. Thank God who works in you. Giving God the glory helps us in so many different ways, and he deserves it. So how can we give God the glory in the ministry? Number one, we prove God's glory. Number two, we protect God's glory. Then finally, Another way in we can bring glory to God in the ministry is by preaching. Preach God's glory. We come down to verse 15 again, and we catch up with the second part. Well, let's just start with the whole verse. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And notice, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So man is following useless things. Man is following their gods. The Greco-Romans really did not exist. They were just an imagination of these people's uh, minds. They had never revealed themselves to mankind. They could not provide food. They could not help man in any way. Worship to these gods was a waste of time. Our modern culture also has its gods. A god is something that, number one, you honor. A god is something that, number two, you devote your life to. A God is something in which you trust. You honor, you devote your life to, you trust. So what are those gods today? If we look at scripture, we can find some indications of several gods of our time. A first God that I want to indicate is evolution. Evolution is a God in this sense. Romans 1, verse 22 through 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. So that's idolatry. People ascribe the creative glory of God to animals. And let me just put it one, one step farther. They ascribe the creative glory of God to mere chance. We all came from monkeys. We all came from this. We all came from that. And God's not getting the glory. What's getting the glory? Mere chance is getting the glory for our existence here today. And they devote time and they devote effort to develop, to follow, and promote 
this God of evolution. I was just out at the Black Hills. We were out at Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, just a far part of Nebraska uh, last Sunday. And our plan was to take one day off and go to Wyoming and see some things there. But uh, Sunday night, we decided, you know, Julie's never been to Mount Rushmore. It's farther away, but let's just go north. And so we went north and went to Black Hills. And so we stayed there in the Black Hills that night. And uh, then we went back east. And on the way, we took the Badlands Loop. And of course, there has to be there a description about how this, how this all happened. 37.5 million years ago, da, 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 da. Yes, and they were there and they saw it happen, right. No, but see, that's, that's what they believe. And that's their God. Humanism is another God. Second Timothy chapter four, verse three and four. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Instead of listening to God, they create their own philosophies like atheism, agnosticism, existentialism. God does not get the glory for their life. They themselves get the glory for determining in their own way their life's purposes and principles. It's humanism. It's what I want to do. It's what I want to believe. But there is another God, and this God is a little more clearly mentioned in Scripture. It's materialism. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So this passage directly says that greed is idolatry. Why? Because... We devote our time to the pursuit of money and possessions. We trust in money for our safety. We have no time for God because of our pursuit of money. They trust a dollar instead of God. Evolution, humanism, materialism, all can be gods in our life. But there's another God that's mentioned in scriptures. It's pleasure, Philippians chapter three, verse 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now I tell you, even as I weep, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. So some people devote themselves to these appetites of the flesh, to these pleasures of the flesh, drinking and drugs, entertainment, disorderly sexual conduct, gluttony, and, and, and on and on it goes. And their life is consumed with pleasing their fleshly desires. They have no time for God. They have no time for Him at all. But there are many other gods in this world. There's the Mormon God. There's the Muslim God. There's the Hindu pantheon. There are the animistic gods, etc. And all these gods are getting the glory and devotion that belongs to the true God. And Paul says, you know, there is a living God, and he deserves the glory. And, and folks, people of Lystra, you need to turn your, your eyes to the living God. So there is a living God for us today. His name is Yahweh, Jehovah. He is the living God. He revealed himself to man, to Adam, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the prophets, the apostles. He showed his great power 
10 plagues in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the conquest of Canaan, the parting of the, of the River Jordan. He showed his power through the, through the prophets, the disciples. He is the living God who, who wrote the Holy Scriptures. The book has, that has stood the test of time. And he sent his greatest incarnation, his greatest revelation in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest revelation of God to man. He is the living, true God, the one who made heavens and earth, and he is the only one worthy of your worship today. In the time past, he permitted all, all peoples to go their own ways. Well, what does that mean when he says that in verse 16? It means probably this sense, that in those times past, he, he worked with the Jewish people, and he sent the Jewish people, you know, the patriarchs, the prophets, he didn't send prophets out to the Gentiles, normally speaking, but everything was focused on the Jewish people. He gave the Old Testament to the Israelite people, but that was not being proclaimed out to the other countries. And everybody who wanted to approach Jehovah God had to come to Jerusalem to, to learn about this God. But nowadays, God is not bringing people to Jerusalem. He is sending people out to the ends of the world so that they can hear the gospel. So in that sense, uh, he's now sending the Apostle Paul over to Lystra, for example, so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even when they were not receiving these preachers of the truth of God, God did not leave them without a witness. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, creation, so that they are without excuse. And if you look at creation, there's no way you can believe that chance made this. No way. It's obviously designed by an intelligent person. So there is a God, and creation shows that God. But then the passage also says that God showed himself through the sustenance. He left himself the witness of creation, but also the witness of sustenance. He gave us rain harvest, food, gladness. And I know sometimes the rain doesn't come when we want it. <laughs> and we've been under um, maybe a semi-drought recently, but now the rain has come. And there's never a time when he doesn't give the rain when we need it. It's always there for us. And that's an indication of his existence and his love for us. And he does fill our, our bodies with food. He does fill our hearts with gladness as we sustain our body. So the Lycaonians may not have had a witness, direct verbal witness from Jerusalem coming to them, but they had creation and sustenance to know that there was a true God in heaven that was so different from the idols and mythological gods that they had. But Paul is here now, and now he's telling them that they must, must turn to the true God. Only God and his son Jesus Christ is worthy of our honor, devotion, and trust. How about you this morning? Have you turned to the true God? Are you saved? Are you following more evolution, pleasures, materialism, and humanism today as opposed to the true living God? If you had died tonight, would you go to heaven? Are your sins forgiven? And if you have not made the decision yet to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and start worshiping the one true God, today is the time in which you can make that decision all you have to do is believe in your heart that he is the true God, that he sent his, his son Jesus Christ to die for you 
And that believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior gives you forgiveness of sins. That is a promise from God. God does not fail his promises. He will follow through on that for you. God is still sending us to counter the world's false gods. God is still sending us to make sure that he gets the glory that the world needs to give to him. A year ago, before we came back to the States, um, a lady from our church had begun to steer away from God. Uh, She was not doing the right thing. There in the university, she met up with a man who was not a believer. Um, Her believing brothers uh, scolded her greatly for leaving the Lord and for hooking up with a man that was not a believer. Uh, But eventually, this man came to church with her and I had the opportunity to sit down and and share with him what we believe. And he was impressed by the fact that everything I shared with him came from the Word of God. It didn't come from my mouth, my head. So he began to then follow through and we began to have Bible studies. And he came to the point of trusting the Lord as his personal Savior. Now I'm always doubtful about those because, you know, he may be doing it for the girl and not for God. But as we came home on furlough, a year bit went by, we didn't have much contact, and um, he finally WhatsApped me. We used a lot of WhatsApp in Peru, and he said, Pastor John, I wanted to continue the discipleship. I've had some difficulties, and I want you to help me with this. So we have resumed uh, the Bible study uh, with this young man and his, his lady friend, and she has begun to gradually come back to the Lord. They need to resolve some things. They need to resolve some issues with that, those brothers of her. And it's those unresolved conflicts that are keeping them from fellowshipping with the church right now. So we're walking through that. And I pray that the Lord will help us to resolve those so, so that they can have a proper relationship with the Lord. But that's the way it is. It's, it's one by one, just reaching out and being ready, available for the people who are looking for the Lord. And then as you have opportunity to share with the many who are not following, following the Lord, just go ahead and do that. God will work in some people's hearts. So Paul is teaching us that we need to give God the glory in the gospel ministry by making sure that um, we prove the glory of God to the world, by protecting God's glory so that we don't get it, but rather we reflect glory to God, and by preaching the glory of God to those around us. If you're not saved today, would you trust him? Christ died for you. Would you like to go to heaven and be with him? He wants you there with him. Does the community know you as a church? Do they know this church building exists here? Do they know that you're actively preaching God's word? Are, they reaching, are you reaching out so that they would know and glorify God? You know, all of us are called by God to go, some across the street and some across the seas. If God is touching your heart today to be like a Paul, like a Barnabas, to go across the seas or across to another location, answer that call. Be sensitive to God's call in your life. Don't say no. Talk with your pastor about it. He'll give you guidance as you sense that call developing in your life. Father, you have spoken to us today. Now is the time of decision. And I ask that if there were people today that are not saved, that have been seeking glory and other things, but not in you, that you would help them to understand that you are the only true God and that their lives need to be glorifying you in every way. Help them to trust you, believe in you as Lord and Savior. And then I pray for the church as it um, proves your glory to its community 
I ask that you would help them to do that in tangible ways and that this community would know that there is a gospel-preaching, God-glorifying church in this community. And then we pray for us as believers. Um, we have VBS coming up, and we can go across the street and share that glorious gospel. But I ask, also ask that you would call people today. You are seeking laborers to go to the harvest fields. And if you're touching someone's heart today, may that person be sensitive to that call and not say no, but develop that call according to your will. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.